Well, I, I just want to start off and uh, wanted to say, first of all, thank you for being a part of Seacoast, and, and thank you for who you are. This church, I don't know if you realize this, we probably don't say it enough, but um, I am consistently impressed and really overwhelmed by many of you, um, actually most of you. This church is uh, so responsive, I think, to what God wants to do, and it, it really is a joy for me. We hear stories, and, and we not, need to continue to do a better job of sharing them, but we hear stories week after week of, of transformation happening in life groups. Uh, we see it happening as, as many of you engage in service, helping with the kids, helping with the youth, and, and volunteering your time, and and the way you give to the Community Resource Center and volunteer as tutors up at Ocean Knoll and in and, and the high, Sunset High School where we have projects. And then so many of you are using your workplace and your neighborhoods as places where you are intentionally trying to live the ways of Jesus. And I want to say, I, I really am, I just love being a part of this group. I love being a part of this church because so, it's such a joy to work with, with you. It really is, and I want you to know that. Even when it's things like budget, when we get towards the end of the budget, you always come through and say, hey, we'll, we'll meet that. You're, you're invested. You're a part of this. And we just want to say thank you. I don't know if we do it enough. This is really a unique group, and it's a joy to be a part of this group. Uh, it, it, it really is. So thank you for being you here at Seacoast. Um, it really is, for, for, as a pastor here, a joy for me. And, and so there you go. We don't say it enough to you, but no, that's for you, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the cool things that I was thinking, you know, we're, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and one of the reasons we decided to st- begin this study, actually all the way back last fall, was because the people, the church, in this city called Ephesus was very similar to the world that we live in today. Their culture and what they were going through really matched a lot of what we see in North San Diego County. And so we were thinking, how can we as a church understand really more of, of how we are to live in the world today? And so that's why we chose this book. And, and we've really, I've enjoyed this study. It starts off in this letter, just to bring us up to speed. The first three chapters, Paul spends it all of reminding the, the new Christians in this town called Ephesus, of their identity. We've talked about it a bunch of times here through this, throughout the series. But he, kept, he keeps reminding them, this is who you are. This is your identity. God has, has given you now a citizenship. You're sons and daughters of God. You have a new identity. You have a, a life to live. This is your mission, and it's about me giving to you. And then you participate, and it's all about a new life. And then the last three chapters are kind of instructions for now that you have a new identity, here's some ideas to think through. This is how it practically plays out. And I was thinking about this, and I had a season in my life where I was working as a store manager in Starbucks. And and so I worked for a few years doing that. And one of the, I I don't know if it's one of the joys, um, but one of the things I was able to do or had to do was I went into stores that needed a little bit of work. Stores that we're not performing well, kind of falling apart. And I had the privilege of going to those and seeing if we could change it or turn it around. And one of the things I, I was, th- was thinking in particular of the last store that I went to and began working in was one of the first things you notice when, when it's a mess, usually everything's a mess. Drinks aren't being made right. Customer service isn't 
working well, the store's not very clean, there's inventory issues, there's staffing issues, just everything is out of whack. And there's so much to think about. What do we need to change here? The first thing that I learned you really have to do is you have to transform the culture. You have to change the culture immediately and, and make it different, a different environment. And there's a couple ways you can do that. One way is you can get rid of all the people and then bring in new people and then you have a new environment. But that comes with a whole lot of other issues when you do that. So what I learned was the most effective thing to do was to go into the store and say there is a new identity here. I don't care what it used to be. Last week when you were on your own, you didn't have good customer service, you didn't make drinks correctly, you were lazy, you had all these issues. That was the old you, but there's a new you. And the new you looks like this. The new you is professional. The new you greets customers as soon as they come through the door. You remember the names. The new you makes drinks the same way every time to perfection. The new you makes sure that when you go through the store every 10 minutes, it is spotless. And the bathroom is cleaner than your bathroom at home, which for the single guys wasn't a very lofty goal, but... But it was the goal nonetheless, is let's go ahead and let's change because this is how you are now. This is the store now. Even before any of the, anything actually changed, we said this is now your new identity. And it's amazing that time and again how quickly the people from the old store in the new store would start living in their new identity. Very quickly, it happened almost every time. In fact, the last store I went into, I, one of the first things I did is I grabbed the employee files on my supervisors, and they were all the supervisors had these thick files of write-ups, bad attitudes, um, talking back to customers, all these things. Were, my first thought was, how are they still working here? What is going on? And I thought, wow, I'm going to have to get rid of all my supervisors in the first week and start over. This is going to be hard. But instead of doing that, we just said, here's who you are now. And it turned out those ended up being the best supervisors I ever had. What they needed was to be in a new environment with a new identity. And the rest of the way was just helping people. Every once in a while, they'd slip into the old identity. And we'd say, like, oh, that's the old you. That, that, that's not actually how we do it anymore. We do it this way. And most of the time, people figured it out. If they didn't figure it out, we found them a, a different store for another company. And, um, <laughs> and we did have to do some of that. But most of it started with, here's your identity. When we look at the book of Ephesians and how Paul is writing, that's what he does. He says, you have all kinds of stuff from your past. It's, it's the old you. And that's, that's there, I get it. But in Christ, that's not there anymore. That's not your identity anymore. And when the old creeps in, just remember, that's, that doesn't fit. And so that's what we've been studying through and now we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is continuing to write about here's how it looks in the new identity. So today we're going to, I invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6, and we're going to take a look at light today, the idea of light. But before we go any further, join me as we pray. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you uh, for the joy of serving you. I thank you for how good you are. And I thank you for a new identity. That God, you don't leave us in our mess. You don't leave us without hope. And Lord, uh, every time we need you, you come through. And sometimes in ways we don't expect, but 
time and again you come through and we're grateful for that. And so this morning, Lord, would you teach us what it means to follow you more closely and help us, God, to be the people who are living that new identity in this world, joined with you in your mission to restore and redeem your creation. So we thank you for this time now and we ask that you teach us and transform us in this place. Amen. All right, so let's open up uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. And today what we're going to do is we're actually just going to walk through. I'm going to read a few verses. We'll walk through those verses together and and work through the text. So starting with Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. And and again, for a little bit more context, two weeks ago chapter 5 began when Paul says, let's be imitators of God. And let's learn to love like Jesus, which was a sacrificial love, a love that said, I'm out for to sacrifice my needs and wants and desires to love others. And then last week, as Dale taught us, we looked at the opposite of love the way God is designed, and it had to do with immorality and all of the different types of things that sometimes we call love, but really it's selfish and it's self-serving, and it, it goes against the design that God has. So then this week, in verse 6, Paul continues, and he writes this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So there's that identity thing. You used to be in darkness, but now you are light. Now you live in light. You have a different way of seeing things. So let's live that way. Now, when he starts off in verse 6, let's look at that a little bit. It says, do not be deceived with empty words, or let no one deceive you with empty words. This idea here in Greek of empty can be translated vain or useless. They are useless words. They're words that don't add any value to the life that you have. For a parallel use of that word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, I actually have this verse on the screen for you. Paul's writing to another church in a place called Colossae, and they're very similar. A lot of the same themes as that he writes to the Ephesians. And he writes this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. That same word. This useless deception that comes through these different philosophies. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So what he's saying is, don't be caught up in the, their philosophy of the time that ends up being really useless now to understand this a little more i want to explain a little bit about the a little bit about the philosophy that existed in the time of paul's writing to the church in ephesus first of all their philosophy that they believed and followed for the most part came from this epicurean thought so if you are into philosophy that will be familiar to you And probably even more specific, there was a writer named Lucretius who wrote this very long 400-page poem called The Nature of Man, or Nature of uh, Things, and it talks about the philosophy that they believed for the day, which essentially is this. The purpose in life is to seek pleasure, to avoid pain, and don't inconvenience anyone else or yourself. So as long as you don't bring inconvenience to anyone else or to yourself, seek pleasure, enjoy what you want, avoid pain at all costs. That was the philosophy of the day. It it kind of had some translation that went in even more to say, whatever works for you, let it work. 
And what works for you might not work for me, but that's fine. It's your way. It's my way. Leave each other alone. Enjoy life. I know none of us have ever heard anything like that before. Until I just read a survey. (laughs) One of the newest research from Barna Group of over a couple hundred thousand Americans who were surveyed. This is the philosophy of today in our country. 89% of people who responded to the, say this, people should not criticize anyone else's life choices. 89%. 86% say, to be fulfilled, you should pursue the things that you desire most. 84% say the highest goal in life is to, is to enjoy it as much as possible. It's the most important thing in life. 79% say believe whatever you want as long as your beliefs don't affect society. 79% of our country say as long as what you believe doesn't change anything, no problem. And unfortunately, when they narrowed down the pool and just interviewed Christians, the numbers didn't go down that much. The philosophy of the day that we live in is very much like it was to the church in Ephesus. Seek pleasure. Avoid pain. Don't inconvenience anyone else. Just do that. Now on the surface, some of these things sound pretty good. I am all for avoiding pain. Trust me. I, I, I don't think I need to go seek after pain. I'm all for enjoying life. I think that that's a good thing. Enjoying life is fine. I think that God's created a lot of great things for us to enjoy, and Christians definitely should enjoy the world that God has created. But notice what all of these things say. Life is all about you. What you want, how you feel. Everyone else are just characters in your story. We see that everywhere, do we not? I mean, social media reinforces that day after day. Life is about me, and as long as you give me a thumbs up of my picture of toast this morning, I'm feeling good. The philosophy is, make sure you're happy, avoid pain, live your life. What's interesting is this seems to be in direct contrast to the life and teaching and ways of Jesus. Avoid pain? Jesus endured the pain of the cross for all mankind. Undeserved on himself, but he endured it for us. He inconvenienced himself for others. Seek pleasure? Jesus sought after those who are on the outside, the outcasts, the broken. He worked tirelessly his time on earth to show people that God had a better plan, that God wanted to redeem this creation that was broken by mankind. The philosophy that Jesus lived by and asks us to live by is not one that says, hey, just mind your own business, leave people alone. No, it's lean in, love, inconvenience yourself. Don't worry about what you need because this is God's story and we're participants. It's not our story. And one of the greatest things we can do is join in the mission with God and live the way he has shown us to live. It stands in contrast to the philosophy of the world. The empty philosophy, the useless philosophy that says it's all about you. And it's so hard because I like when life's all about me. (laughs) 
In the words of the NFL receiver Terrell Owens, I love me some me. (laughs) The philosophy of our day. And it's so hard to live differently. But Paul begins here and he says, don't buy in. Don't buy into this. Because you used to be in darkness, but now you're in light. There's a different way to live. A few years ago, when we were living in Orange County, someone gave my family, uh, uh, one of their grandparents gave us season tickets, what's it called, season pass to Disneyland, which was a lot of fun for us. Uh, We had it for one year, and the kids were perfect age for it. We lived pretty close. And I love, it was, it was a lot of fun. One of the rides that I enjoyed at Disneyland is Space Mountain. I mean, who doesn't like Space Mountain? It's pretty fun. You're in the dark and you're flying and they have like the stars going by and they have the, the Atari music, you know, blaring in your year, ears. No one knows Atari. Okay, cool. Um, the space music going. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a pretty fun ride. So we were on it one day my older two boys and I, and it stopped. It just stopped. We were going and then it just went, and my first thought is, we're going to get rear-ended. This is, we're going to get round. There's another one coming. And, of course, they thought through this. So when one stops, they all stop. So we were, we were stopped and just sat there. And then the moment came and the voice comes up of, um, we're experiencing some technical difficulties. Like, yeah, I kind of noticed. We stopped. And then one of the worst things ever happened. The lights came on. If you've ever, if you've never seen Space Mountain with the lights on, let me just tell you, if you're on Space Mountain and the lights come on, close your eyes quickly. You you don't want to see it because it goes from like this cool ride where you're flying through space and it's fun. And then when you can see what it is, all of a sudden it's like a carnival ride in Barstow. I mean, that's what all this, (laughs) and I don't know why I just picked on Barstow, but you get the point. (laughs) All of a sudden you just look at it and go like, really? This is, this is what Space Mountain is? It's so lame with the lights on. And I, I, I'm making the spiritual now. But <laughs> you see, when there's light, everything changes. This perspective should change. Things should be different. And as Christians, when we live our world, we are now in light, not in darkness. We should see things completely different than we used to see it. I would even say this. In the light, those things that seem so much fun in the dark, all of a sudden you go like, really? That's what I was living for? Really? That's it? The light gives us a whole new perspective. So Paul's saying, don't buy into that old perspective. Don't buy into the philosophy of the world. As parents, don't think your only goal is to keep your kids safe and make their life perfect. That's not your goal. That's what we want to do. We want to do that. I hate when I see my kids getting bullied. I remember when one of my kids in elementary school was getting bullied by someone, my first thought was, who is it? Tell me who it is. I'm going to go take care of business. You know, as if I could do anything without getting arrested. But I, w- <laughs> I wanted to go bully the bully, you know. But why? Because I want his life to avoid pain and only enjoy pleasure. Sometimes life isn't that way. We protect our kids from everything. Even in our Christian life, how many things do we give them a watered-down version of what Jesus is? Because the real version is actually a little harder. It's actually not so simple. One of your kids might actually say, hey, I want to be a missionary. And you go like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, I want you to follow Jesus, but he wants you in San Diego. (laughs) It's tough, right? 
But don't buy in, Paul says. In the light, everything looks different. It should. So let's jump in. Let's keep going. Back to you. Uh, let's pick up the end of verse 8. For you were formerly in darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now most of our translations should have a parenthesis around verse 9, and that essentially is because he, he took a pause and gave some greater detail. So let's read it again from the end of 8 and skip 9 for a moment. I want you to hear it that way. You now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, one of the ways that we can avoid empty philosophy and live the way that God has called us to live is by asking this question, God, what is pleasing to you? That's a very difficult question, and to be honest with you, I don't always like to pray that prayer. Because what's pleasing to God may actually not be what is pleasing to me. And there are times when I want to, I, I, I know even like, ah, this is probably more pleasing to you if I do this, Lord, but that's not really, I'm not feeling it. I knew a few years ago, we, I was working at a church, and the church I worked at gave us, we had, at Christmas we got a bonus, there was someone in the church who always gave, and it was in the form of $100 bills, and it was anywhere from $500 to $1,000 cash. And I was a youth pastor, so that was like living large, you know. And, and so every Christmas we'd get that, and we kind of got into this rhythm of taking that and saying, God, this was a bonus. What do you want to do with it? And for years, we just took it and whatever we got, we gave to our uh, missionary friends who were basically living in poverty for the gospel. They were serving others and living literally under the poverty line. And, and I hated that. <laughs> so I was like, that's a lot of money. I'd like that money. <laughs> that'd, be good. that'd be great to have. But it got there when God when the question was, God, what would be pleasing to you? And what's easier to do sometimes is to make the prayer like, God, I just got a bonus. What's more pleasing to you, a cruise in the Caribbean or in the Mediterranean? I, I just, I just want to please you. <laughs> I, I kind of do that more often. I give God options that fit with my parameter. And I'll, I'll try to make them hurt a little bit, you know? Like, I don't know. Dumb it down a little bit, or maybe I'll take a little, but it's not all money. For sure it's not just money, it's a lot of things. God, what do you want from my life? It's so easy to say, this or this, and he's going, no, 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 I want you to give it all. Not all, maybe not all your money, maybe not all, but I want you to be willing to give it all. Serve here. And guess what? One time he might say give it all. Give it up. Quit living for yourself. So people who live in the light learn how to ask the question, Lord, what is pleasing to you? And by the way, it could very well be that God says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to book a cruise for you and your wife because you're working way too much and you need to stop what you're doing, take some time off and re-engage and invest in your marriage. He might. I've been waiting for him to say that to me for a while. <laughs> no, but it could be that. God, what is pleasing to you? It's not like God always wants to punish you too, by the way. Don't think like, oh, he's going to tell me the worst thing possible. Because the truth is, when we follow the Lord, it always ends up being a bigger joy. It really does. So let's learn to ask, God, what is pleasing to you? Now let's go back to verse 9 and see, here is what Paul says, the light, the fruit of the light, or the evidence of living in the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So he gives us a few ideas of if you want to know what living in the light looks like, he gives us three words. 
First one is this, goodness. Goodness here is used, in, in I believe, in the context. Uh, it's used again in Romans 15, 14, at uh, the same context. And, and it's often goodness in relation to how you interact or what you do for others. It's goodness in a selflessness. How can you have your life be for the good of someone else? That's goodness. Goodness is considering, you know what, it's not about me. It's about what God wants to do. That's a sign of light. I I read a story about a guy named Dr. Kent Brantley. He was trying to figure out what it meant as a Christian to live in the light. And he was a doctor and he felt that God was calling he and his family to move to Liberia in West Africa. So he moved and served the people in West Africa. A few years ago when the Ebola outbreak occurred, everyone was telling him, get out of there. It's coming your way. You need to go home. But he stayed. He got their village prepared and they, and they got all the necessary uh, medicine and everything they could do to fight it the best they could. And they were more prepared. When Ebola finally showed up on their area, they were uh, helping people more than ever. Well, the, what seemed very much like it was going to happen, happened, and he himself contracted Ebola. Eventually, the U.S. government encouraged him and he finally flew home and he says, you know, he felt badly because he was receiving better care than the people that he was serving. And eventually he recovered and he was better. He was interviewed by news and media outlet all over the place as people wanted to know what drove this man to do what he did and people found out about his faith and they asked this question. They said, Dr. Brantley, do you believe that it's your faith that healed you from Ebola? His response was this. No. My faith did not heal me. It is my faith that brought me to Liberia and got me Ebola in the first place. It wasn't my faith that healed me. It's my faith that ended up getting me sick in the first place. You see, because he understood what it meant to live in the light. And he understood that goodness meant that it was for the good of others, even at his expense. Not the avoidance of pain and the seeking after pleasure. It was, God, how can I live for you? And I don't really care what happens. And I love his response. Did he pray for healing? I'm sure he did. Did God have a hand in his healing? I'm sure he did. Did doctors have a hand in his healing too? Yes. But I love his response. My faith didn't heal me. My faith got me sick. You see, people of the light are not afraid of that. People who walk in goodness, we don't try to avoid it. We lean in. We lean in. What a great example. The writer Gabe Lyons writes this, Good faith Christians risk their reputation, their comfort, and their lives for others. That's what goodness looks like. Risking your reputation and your comfort in your lives for others. So the first mark of a sign of light is goodness. The second one is this, righteousness. Righteousness, and this refers to your relationships. It refers to your friendships. Righteousness essentially means when your relationships are in order. When there, you might have conflict, but the conflict is taken care of. You're not living with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and, and just brokenness in all of your relationships with other humans and with God. So a sign of light are people who take care of their relationships. 
It's something that happens. Now, we all know people, and, and you may be one, that if you look at the friendships and relationships in your life, there's just a path of destruction in your wake. Everywhere you go, there tends to be broken relationships. People who look at you and think, oh, that guy's a jerk, or I can't believe they're always like this. If that, that is not a sign of light. One of the things that I, I do in this community is, you know, I play basketball in a local gym at the community center, and, and I, I coach baseball, and I hang out with a lot of guys who coach baseball and basketball and football and engage. And so it can kind of be like this alpha male culture that I spend a lot of time in. And, and in that culture, it's, sometimes I think I'm back in the high school locker room. Seriously, it, it, it doesn't sound any different the way they joke with each other and talk. And I, if we had towels, we'd be whipping each other with them. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of how the guys are. And there's always a couple that when you look at them, you just see there is no righteousness in their relationships. Everywhere they go, there's just a path of destruction. You can mention someone who's maybe a coach, and the rest of the coaches will be like, oh, I hate coaching against that guy. Or, oh, I used to work, he was my assistant one year. That's terrible. And have that kind of reputation. That is not a sign of light. When you have a pattern of looking in your life and it's always other people who are the problem, you're probably the problem. (laughs) In the light are people who lean in and, and have relationships that are in order. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, it actually says this, When a person's ways please the Lord, it causes even their enemies to live at peace with them. You see, people who live and and your ways please the Lord, you ask that question, God, how can I please you in my life? Even your enemies will be at peace with you. Because they'll see the light and say, wow, there's, I, it's kind of an enjoyable person to be around. It should be a sign of light. And if that's a struggle for you, maybe it's an anger thing. Maybe it's a pride thing. Maybe it's a need to always win and never let anyone one-up you, and as a result, you just always have this conflict. Perhaps it's with a family member, and you just don't want to let something go, because you just want to make sure you have the final word. The light says, you know what? God, what would please you? What would please you? Maybe I need to consider that person and just let go. Just let go. Okay, so goodness, righteousness, and then truth. Truth should be the mark of, of someone walking in the light. What is truth? I have this for you on the screen. John chapter 17, verses 17 through 18. Jesus is praying a prayer for his followers, his disciples. And he says this. Sanctify, I have it on, on the screen for you. Sanctify them in truth. And, and this word sanctify really means transform them, help make them become holy or, or change their lives. So sanctify them, transform them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus' prayer for you and for me is that we will be transformed by truth. And then he says, the word of God is truth. Here at Seacoast, we choose to believe that this is where we find the truth to base our lives on. The empty philosophy of the world would say, what's true for you is not true for me. You find your truth, I'll find mine. Yeah, you can find good things in your Bible, but I find good things in my book or in my philosophy from my guru. Which, of course, is a logical fallacy that everyone can have their own truth. By definition, then, there is no truth with that. 
So we choose to believe that this is true. Now, some of you might say, Ryan, that is so old-fashioned. And let me tell you, it's not old-fashioned. It's older than that. This is ancient. This was old before old-fashioned was even born. This truth is ancient truth from the creator of the universe. And in here, now I'm not one to believe that, I mean, this book does not talk about the theory of gravity. But I'm not going to go through life saying, well, gravity doesn't exist because the Bible doesn't say so, and there's truth in here. No, we're not talking about that. We're saying what is in here is true. There's principles that we base our lives on. We don't find it in other places and say, well, that doesn't feel right, so let me find something that feels better. We choose to believe that this ancient truth is good. It's the key to healthy relationships. It's the key to the mission of God of restoring creation. Fixing what we broke in the first place, we find truth right here. Jesus prayed that we could be transformed by this truth. Now, have mankind misused the truth in Scripture? The answer is yes. It's sad to say, but it's misused all the time. People used to use the Bible to justify slavery. That's right from the pit of hell. And until a group of Christians started really studying, say, wait a minute. If these people that we are enslaving are God's creation, if they are precious to God, created in His image, then they are brothers and sisters in Christ, there's no way slavery can be right. So they rose up and fought against it. And if slavery was abolished, Modern day forms of of racial tension still exist today. And people of truth will look to this word and say, God, there's got to be a better way. People who live in the light should be leaning into these issues and redeeming it, doing it the way that God has called us to. Saying there's got to be something different if we're all created in His image. People have used this book to form the belief that life comes from God. He gives and He takes life. And so we fight against or fight for the rights of the unborn and i think that's very biblical but bombing abortion clinics and shaming people who've been through those procedures is not biblical that is not truth found in scripture rather than living and walking in love next to someone and leaning into the pain and helping to restore what's broken now that's the way to do it that's truth found in this scripture we can have a basis of our morals and live by those and still live the way that God's called us to. We don't compromise the truth. But we don't use it to then ignore how we interact. We have to take it all, all the truth. One of the things I love is to see what Christians today are doing when they read truth. Do you know Christians who are saying, we believe that God has called us to something bigger. We need to do something different. They're fighting against human trafficking, which despicably is on the rise in America. Human trafficking. There's a group of Christians here in North County, San Diego, who have a goal of getting rid of it, reducing it down to 0% in the future because they're making a strategy, strategy to fight against it. And you say, well, that doesn't happen here. It's actually growing here. But Christians, people of truth, are saying, no, we're going to live in the light of Jesus and we're going to change. So when we have truth, we we see great change. But we base our lives, our truth, our morals on this book. It's ancient, not old-fashioned. And it's great. And it's challenging. It might, uh, it's sometimes a little more difficult. 
There's a lot of things I wish the Bible didn't say, but it says. <laughs> but people of good faith aren't afraid of that. We don't walk away. But it's how we live that truth. That's the big difference. We've got to keep moving. Verse 11, so it goes like this. It moves on and it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Now this passage here, just really quickly, these three verses, this whole context has been in light of Christians living together within context of a Christian community in the church. It doesn't change in verses 11 through 13. He's still saying, expose the darkness within the church. This is not a verse that says, go out and start pointing fingers at everything that people who do not believe do that goes against God's word. Why would someone who doesn't believe live the ways of Jesus? Paul actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't have time to go there, but you can look it up later. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 through 13, speaking about the same issue. He says, I don't want you to to disassociate with immoral people who don't follow Jesus. I'm not talking about that. He's saying, it's within the church, don't let immoral people, don't associate there in the church with Christians who are compromising their faith. It doesn't mean Christians who are struggling. We all struggle. One of the reasons we have life groups here is because this is a place where we can expose the darkness in our lives, and we all have darkness in our lives. We all have things, pieces of the dark side, (laughs) And in your life group, that's a great place for someone to say, yeah, I don't know about that. Have you considered that piece of your life? When you walk alone, it is so easy to ignore the darkness in your own life. I always compare it to, does anyone here drive around with a check engine light on in your car? (laughs) Yeah, there's a few, there's a few. When it first came on, you probably were like, wait, what is that? Or maybe if someone borrows your car, they'll stop and be like, wait, your check engine light's on. And you go like, yeah, it's been on for years. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Without life groups, that's how we treat sin. At first, you might go, ooh, uh, I probably shouldn't have that in my life. But in time, you get really comfortable with it until someone else says, hey, uh, your check engine light's on, man. (laughs) You go like, yeah, it's been on for years. And then they say, yeah, it's time to fix that. The car's going to blow up. I literally had a friend of mine drove around with a check oil light for like four or five months. It turned out he was out of oil and he was on the on I-5 and his car just blew up, basically. Just said, no more, idiot. And uh, he, he had to replace his entire engine. And I was like, you know, your light was on for four months. Well, yeah, but it, it wasn't hurting anything. <laughs> That's why we have life groups. So you change the oil. <laughs> the sin in your life. And Paul says, don't let that creep in. Don't let it creep in. And then he ends with this. For this reason it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now as he ends with this, I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way up. He ends, and, and often when the, in Scripture when it says, For this reason it says, it's usually referring to another verse. This is roughly referring to a verse, but scholars mostly believe and agree that this is probably referring to an ancient hymn that they used to sing to one another. They used to sing this in their church services. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In fact, uh, the guys in my life group are going to sing it to you right now. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. (laughs) Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And we believe that this song 
that they sang to one another was based on Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. And I want to read this to you because I love the way this ends. He says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And this is a messianic prophecy about Zion and saying the Messiah will come. But it translates then, Paul in the early church used it to sing to one another in the church and to encourage one another. So arise and shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Get this, for behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Do you see that? When the light of Jesus shines on us, when we recall and remember what God has for us, that is attractive. That changes things. That transforms lives. When people see true Christian living the way Jesus has shown us, and it comes out in our lives, that's so attractive. It makes a difference. It transforms communities. Here at Seacoast, we believe that God wants to transform North San Diego County. And He wants to use you and me in that process. And when we live in community together and in our world with goodness and righteousness and truth, asking what is pleasing to you, God, we will see our community transform. God hasn't given up on San Diego. And if you have, it's time to recommit and say, God, sorry that I gave up. What do you want from me? What do you want from us? And let's join with that. So we're going to sing this, uh, a final song here. And this song, we're just going to celebrate the fact that God reached out and showed us light. Most of us in this room have experienced the light from Christ. Some of you, maybe you're still seeking, and today our prayer for you is that you take that step and say, God, I want to live in the light. And we're just going to remember that what God has done has transformed us and will change our world. So join us, stand with me. And uh, let's pray as we enter into this last song. God, we thank you again for your life. We thank you for your truth. And I pray that you would keep using Seacoast and the people here who love you and who are serving you, God, to transform this world that you've placed us in. We thank you and we give you this last song as a song of praise and a reminder of who you are in the light.